Today. We're going to continue to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, pull those out. And while you do that, I want to kind of set the scene for us as we enter chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew. And it, it, it's a pretty delicate situation, to say the least, in Jesus' life as we approach chapter 26. On the one hand, Jesus has been gaining followers of his own for some time now. But on the other hand, the religious leaders that we have so often encountered through this gospel, they just want to get rid of Jesus at this point. You know, for the last six chapters, Jesus has really kind of honed in on answering this question, how do I get to heaven? And as we have learned, the answer to that question comes with authority and judgment. And we've also learned that a lot of the people think that it's a pretty unfair answer that Jesus gives. And the result is that a lot of people, not the least of which are these religious leaders, they're very offended by Jesus. And the tension kind of comes to a head here in chapter 26. Something's got to give. Uh, the current situation, it, it, it cannot and it will not carry on the way it is. Uh, there's so much tension building up. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 1 and see how this tension eventually re resolves itself. So Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2 to start out. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So we're starting the story on Wednesday. Jesus says we're two days out from Passover. Passover's on Friday. We start on Wednesday here, and in referencing the Passover, Jesus is really trying to give his disciples a framework uh, to interpret his death correctly. The disciples certainly would have had a working knowledge of, of what the Passover meal was, what it represented. But Jesus is saying, there's a lot of similarities there between that meal and, and my own death, but there's a lot of differences too. And I'm, I'm actually going to add a whole new level of meaning to what this meal means from now on. But more than that, here's what I want you to see in these opening two verses. I want you to see that Jesus is going to be in control the entire time. Okay? We're starting what we call the passion narrative. So the events leading up to and including Jesus' crucifixion. And not only does he know exactly when and how the crucifixion is going to happen, we learn from these verses, but he knows how all the events leading up to the crucifixion are going to go down. And this is a major theme of this chapter. We're going to see it pop up several more times as we work our way through this chapter. So let's continue in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. So enter Jesus' chief opponents. We've seen these guys several times throughout the book of Matthew, right? You probably have a, um, a disdain for these guys already if you've been with us the whole time through the book of Matthew. And they've had enough of Jesus. And now it's time to get serious about getting rid of this guy, right? But as we said, there's a, there's a tension here. Jesus not only has his own followers, but the crowds in Jerusalem typically tripled around Passover and the celebrations leading up to it. So if they're going to arrest an innocent man in the midst of all these people, a riot could break out. And so what are they going to do? Matthew says, they're going to arrest him in a treacherous way, right? And, and that word, it has connotations of betrayal, deceit, uh, certainly evil motives behind it. 
In fact, Matthew uses that word betrayal or something like it 19 times in this chapter alone. 19 times. And so, so the, the interaction we have throughout this chapter is this. The religious leaders, they can plot and deceive and persecute all they want. But in the midst of all that, Jesus is the one that's in control. So from here, Jesus and his his disciples, they begin to prepare the Passover meal that they're going to have on Thursday. Jesus is going to be busy Friday night with something else. And so they're going to do it a day early on Thursday. And so they begin preparing that meal. And we're going to pick it up as they're gathering for this meal in verse 20. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. He replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You said it, he told him. So when Jesus says it's the one that dips his hand with me in the bowl, he's not singling anyone out at this point. This was a communal gathering. They were kind of in a U-shape with one sort of communal bowl there that they would dip the bread in. And at some point or another, all of the disciples probably dipped their hand in the bowl with Jesus. But his point is, up to this time, his opponents have been pretty distant from him. Now it's entered his inner circle. And this just heightens the enormity of the the betrayal that's going to take place here. The disciples are probably shocked that the betrayer is going to come from one of Jesus' 12 closest friends. And so 11 of them reply, well, surely not I, Lord. And then you notice Judas is the last one to jump in. And he can't even call Jesus Lord because he knows in his heart that Jesus is not the master of his life. But he probably feels he has to speak up. The other 11 have already denied it. If I don't, I'm going to incriminate myself. So I I need to jump in here and, and also deny it. So he says, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus in his response is saying, well, Judas, those are your words, not mine. And both Jesus and Judas know at that point that Judas has condemned himself. And so he's got to act quickly if he's going to complete this betrayal. And once again here, Notice that it's Jesus that's in control of it all. Not only does he already know which one of his disciples are going to betray him, (coughs) but he affirms that the coming events are going to take place exactly as they were ordained by his Father in his word. So let's pick it up in, in verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this description of the Lord's Supper is probably very familiar to a lot of us, but the disciples would have been probably both stunned and confused by what was going on at this point. This is going to be the last opportunity for the disciples to really wrap their minds around what Jesus' coming sacrifice is all about. So there's certainly some similarities to the Passover meal, but there's a lot of big differences as well. Whereas the bread originally symbolized the haste 
with which the Israelites fled out of Egypt, now it represents Jesus' own flesh being torn off of his body. And the cups, there were, there were four cups with the Passover meal. They initially symbolized the promises of God concerning the Israelites' redemption. And now they symbolize Jesus' own blood being poured out of his body. And the first Passover celebrated escape from Egypt and this anticipation of coming to the promised land. But now it celebrates escape from God's wrath against sin in anticipation of arrival in the new heaven, in the new earth. And so Jesus is giving an entirely different meaning to this meal. He's saying that his death is going to be central to the relationship between God and his people from here forward. It would be the means of cleansing from past sins and from setting apart a people that are dedicated in their life to God. The covenant between God and his people, it would no longer be based on keeping the law like it was with the old covenant. Now it would be based on forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And as we'll see later today, those who put their faith in Christ, when they participate in eating the bread and drinking the blood, they would identify with the benefits of Jesus' death. So Jesus says, my death is central to it all. And once again, we see that it's Jesus that's in control. It's him that who will willingly give his body over to be torn apart and for blood to be poured out of his body. And then we see a shocking turn of events when we pick it up in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's God striking Jesus on the cross. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So we very quickly move from a pretty heavy setting in the Lord's Supper, but an intimate one, right? To this, what has to be shocking and pretty abrupt prediction by Jesus that not one, but all of his disciples are going to leave him, right? And of course, the disciples, they can't even believe it. So all of them to a man are very resolute in declaring their loyalty to Jesus. And he later describes this posture of their hearts as saying, you know what? Often the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've got a lot of zeal behind your words, but your actions are not going to follow up with those words. And still the disciples can't fully grasp what is about to happen. They're not ready for defeat, especially not the way it's going to go down at the cross. They don't think that's the way it's going to happen. What they probably have in mind at this point is something along the lines of going out in a heroic blaze of glory. And we'll, we'll see a clue to that in a little bit. But once again, as we have repeatedly seen, Jesus is in control and he knows that this is actually going to be a very voluntary sacrifice. So the near future is imminent. Jesus knows what lies ahead in the future. He knows his fate. So he takes his disciples and he heads to the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks his three closest, Peter, James, and John, to come with him and pray to prepare for this looming crucifixion. So let's pick it up in verse 38. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Whereas the disciples, they, they can't really grasp the significance of what is about to take place. Jesus understands it perfectly. And when he says that he's grieved to the point of death, he, he's talking about an emotional and spiritual anguish in his heart here. This isn't fear because he's facing a horrible physical death and suffering, as bad as that is. More so, it's this deep, deep, deep pain in his heart because he knows that the cross means separation from his father. He knows that there's going to be this fierce anger, this vengeance that God has toward the sin of the world, past, present, future, that's going to be directed at him. And so he says, Father, if there's a way out of this, make it so. If there's a way out, make it so, Father. And then look at verse 42. He comes back and he says, again, a second time he went away and prayed, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus learned something from his Father. From the first time he made this petition to the second. Because the second he says, well, if it can't pass. Evidently the first time he thought it could pass, right? It was possible that this cup passed. But not everything that's possible is part of God's will. And he's come to know this with his second petition. And so he leaves no doubt as to a commitment to his father's will. So if you're taking notes, write this down. With Jesus... When the going gets tough, God's will always wins. With Jesus, when the going gets tough, God's will always wins. Jesus is the perfect model here for his own teaching in the Lord's Prayer. He chooses what brings him anguish, but pleases his Father. He looked at his greatest nightmare in the face and he willingly submitted to it. And, and to, to be clear, his greatest nightmare was not physical death. It wasn't suffering as horrible as that was. His greatest nightmare was being torn apart from his father and being on that cross and saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he voluntarily accepted being abandoned by his father so that we could be brought near to him. But look at Jesus now. Can you imagine the immensity of this moment here? The pain, the anguish. And how does he respond? Well, he affirms his loyalty to his father a third time in the garden. And then he gets up with complete poise to go meet his betrayer. Because he's the one that's in control. So Jesus and his disciples are confronted by Judas and Matthew says a large mob. Now Judas probably went to the upper room where the Last Supper was first. Didn't find him there, and he probably knew that Jesus and his disciples hung out in the Garden of Gethsemane, so he took the mob there next. And it's probably made up of, of Sanhedrin, um, certainly chief priests and elders, temple police. Um, many think there might have even been a small detachment of Roman soldiers. And Matthew says that Judas identifies Jesus to this mob by walking up to him and giving him a kiss. And then Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. We learn that his name is Malchus from one of the other Gospels. And he was actually probably trying to cut off his head. Nobody goes to somebody and cuts off their ear. He was probably trying to cut off his head. And the servant probably did one of these, Matrix style, and he lopped off his ear. That's what most commentators think happened. I'm not making this stuff up. And so... 
Peter might think, okay, this is the ultimate test of loyalty that Jesus was talking about. Like, this is when I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory that, that he was talking about earlier. I can do this. But look at Jesus' response in verses 52 and 54. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call my father and he will provide, he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Who's in control? Jesus, right? Put your sword back. If I could get, if, if, if I wanted to get out of this, I could get out of it. But that's not my mission, Peter. And then verse 55, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. There's no, Jesus, there's no reason to arrest Jesus in a secret or violent way. Except the evil motives in the minds of those religious leaders. The hatred that they've built up in their hearts toward Jesus. And then look how this section finishes. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. This is the last straw for the disciples. They have to be absolutely shocked at what was going on here. This is not the way they thought things would go down. Even in the midst of Jesus repeatedly correcting them along the way. You can think back to when Jesus predicted his crucifixion. and Peter says, no, it's not going to go down that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. They didn't understand it then. They still don't get what's going on now. They probably thought that Jesus would establish his kingdom by some kind of military and governmental rule. And that, of course, that's not the case. That's not what's going to happen. So in their minds, it's like, well, this is the last moment I can get out. So we need to get out now. So all of them, Matthew says, abandoned Jesus. All of them. So if you're taking notes, write this down. With you and me, when the going gets tough, our flesh often wins. With you and me, when the going gets tough, our flesh often wins. If God was not holding our faith together every second of every day, we would turn our backs on him at the first sign of temptation. The first time that our faith got challenged, we would abandon him. And we need to be cautious about ever thinking that we can hold our own faith together much less grow our own faith. We also need to be humble enough to acknowledge that it's God's preserving grace that holds us together, that prevents us from just turning our backs when the slightest temptation or the slightest trial comes. But the disciples did abandon Jesus, right? And if you read on, you learn that Peter actually denied him three times. And Matthew says the third time he evokes an oath. In other words, this is how it went down. The, the, the young woman says, you're with him. You're with Jesus. Peter says, no, strike me down dead if I am lying. That's what it means to invoke an oath. That's how strong it was for Peter. That's how strong his lie was. Strike me down if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And this is going to be hard to take, but we do the same thing, Veritas. It, it may not be exactly the same way Peter did or the disciples did, but... Our faith isn't perfect, and there are ways that all of us turn our backs on Jesus. Now, earlier in Matthew, this is what Jesus says. He says, if you deny me before men, 
I will also deny you before my Father who's in heaven. And let's be clear, he's saying, you're not going to heaven if you deny me before men. So what do we do with that? There are tremendous words of hope in this passage. And if you're not exactly sure what you're looking for, you'd pass over them, you'd miss them. It took me about four times to get it. So let's go back to verse 32. This is in that section where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. So Matthew 26, verse 32. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, let, let's put some context on this. Jesus has just predicted. He knows that all of his disciples are going to abandon him when he needs them the most. Okay? But he's saying here, he's saying, I'm actually going to go ahead of you and I'll meet you in Galilee. I'll be there first after the resurrection. You'll come behind me and meet me there. What is significant that takes place in Galilee after the resurrection? It's the spread of the gospel to all nations. This is where Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. And Veritas, Jesus is not going to use 11 men to do the Great Commission that he will deny before his Father in heaven. He's going to use 11 men who have been restored to him by the grace of God. That is hope for us. That is great news right there. Abandonment is not going to be the end of their story. and doesn't have to be the end of ours. Jesus is going to continue to use these 11 very imperfect men to build this new community he's creating called the church. Third thing to write down. Because God's will always wins with Jesus, restoration is always possible. Because God's will always wins with Jesus, restoration is always possible. We can only conclude if we read the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament epistles, we can only conclude that the disciples genuinely repented of their sin. That's the only conclusion we can come to. And we need to follow that example again and again and again and again. Because short of just, just casting Jesus aside in just total and complete unbelief, there is no sin that makes you unrestorable with Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is arrested now, and we go on to his trial. Let's finish our text here. Verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance, right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, This man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What's your decision? They answered, He deserves death. They spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? 
So here we see Jesus finally brought to trial. And let's be clear about this up front. There is absolutely no pretense of objectivity on the part of the religious leaders present here. Okay? They gathered for the express purpose of drumming up some charges against Jesus. That's, that's the purpose for gathering. This trial, it was a total sham. It was illegal on so many levels. You weren't supposed to have trials at night. Okay? You weren't supposed to have trials during festivals and holidays. Uh, you weren't supposed to be able to reach a capital verdict in one day. Um, the results of the trial um, are going to hinge on witnesses that are absolute joke to this whole thing. It says they're false witnesses in the text, right? Jesus should have been permitted counsel for his defense in this whole thing. And the procedure for calling the witnesses even was, a, was un, unlawful, much less their own testimony. It was a total joke on every level, this trial. Nonetheless, Jesus is in the midst of his trial. And the results of the trial are going to hinge on who he says he is. Answering the high priest's question. So the high priest says, well, are you the Messiah? And Jesus, in answering the way he, he did, what he's saying is, well, I am, but not really the way you understand it. See, you think I'm just the political savior of the Jewish people, but I'm actually the spiritual savior of the entire human race for all time. Okay? Two different levels we're, we're, we're looking at here, right? And, but here's the thing. In saying this, Jesus is claiming a relationship with God that no one else has ever heard of. No one else has ever seen. Okay? And it's not, it's not technically blasphemy according to Jewish law, but it's close enough for them. Right? Close enough. And so what do they do? Well, they pronounce him guilty of a capital offense, blasphemy, and they pronounce him uh, to be put to death. Now, the reason the religious leaders accuse him of blasphemy is because here's what's going through their mind. Well, if he really was the Messiah, he'd get himself out of this. So that's proof that he's not the Messiah. But Jesus isn't here to defend himself. He's here to suffer according to God's will. And these evil plans of the religious leaders and all of his other enemies, they're only serving to advance God's will through the whole narrative here. Jesus was in control when he predicted his betrayal at the Last Supper. He was in control in the Garden of Gethsemane. At his arrest, when the disciples abandoned him. Now in the midst of his trial, he's still in control and he makes it very clear I am the undisputed king. And I will be sitting on my throne judging the world very soon because I'll be in control through the cross and after the cross. If you remember one thing from today, let it be this. If you can trust Jesus to be in control of his own crucifixion, you can trust him to be in control of every single bit of your life. Nothing is off the table. You can trust it all with Jesus. Not your plans, not your future, not your spouse, not your money, not your possessions, not your kids. Push it all in. All the chips are in. You can trust anything with Jesus if you can trust him to be in control of his own crucifixion. Jesus in control at the cross was the best thing for us, but it, it's only through the cross that we're made right with God. That's why it was best that he was in control. 
And here, here's the thing, Veritas. Jesus in control of every area of your life is the best thing for you because it's only there where you join the adventure that God has waiting for you. Okay? Let, let, let's explore this a little bit. and let's, let's prick at our hearts a little bit along the way. We all have areas of our lives that we have not completely handed over to Jesus. We don't give Jesus control because at some point or another, we don't want to transfer trust to him, right? But the real question is, why don't we want to transfer that trust? And I think there's a lot of ways you could answer that, but there's, I think there's one way that probably gets to the core of it all. We don't want to give up control because control is the primary way that we protect our idols. Control is the primary way that we protect our idols. If I can control the circumstances of my life, I can set things up in such a way where my idols are unharmed. They're preserved. Whatever they are. Okay? Many of you guys know that powerlifting has been a, a, a big part of my life. And if you want to be successful at powerlifting, there's three things you got to do really well all the time. Train, eat, and sleep. You put those three things together, it's about 24 hours a day. Okay? So it's pretty hard for that to not become an idol. And it had for me. And, and I would control my life in such a way that I would let nothing infringe on those things. Absolutely nothing. And if it threatened to infringe it, I would get it out of my life or say no to it. I fought so hard for control. And God abruptly snatched that away from me last year. I sustained a, a really bad elbow injury. I had a very serious surgery. And, and I'll probably never compete again. And that was really, really hard for me to handle. And I was processing it with Mark out in the foyer. And, you know, Mark said, man, Brian, you know, this has been such a big part of your life for so long. Like, how are you handling this? And what I said to Mark was, I said, Mark, God had to take this away from me for me to realize the prison that I was in. He had to take it away from me for me to realize the prison that I was in. I was missing out on so much of the adventure God has for me. Jeff Dodge comes up to me and he says, Hey, Brian, you want to go to China next fall to teach theology classes? There's absolutely no way in the world I would have said yes to that. Pump my body full of MSG for a week? How's that going to be for powerlifting? Right? <laughs> I'm sorry, Jamie. I love the food over there. I've been over there several times. We have this trip to the most theologically rich place in the entire world. Two weeks in Israel and Greece. There's absolutely no way I would have said yes to that. And recently God convicted me saying, Brian, I want you to go back to school and get your doctorate because I want you to be able to teach in the classroom. Five years. No way I say yes to that. This is the adventure that I would have missed out on if I was kept in this prison. And here's the thing, guys. You, you, you know, you maintain such a tight grip of control in your life. You put yourself in the prison. But, but guess what? The door of that prison cell is always open. If you're a believer in Christ, it's always open. Right? Paul says, sin will no longer have dominion over you. There's nothing keeping you in the cell. But you still have to walk out of the cell. <laughs> or sometimes, you need God to give you a firm push out of it. I think that's what he did for me, and I'm thankful for it. What in your life do you have such a tight grip of control on that you don't want to hand over to Jesus? And more than that, what adventure of God are you missing out on? Because you refuse to walk out of the prison cell. You know, 
Is God calling you to help plant a church? I think you guys know by now that happens pretty often in this church network, right? Is God calling you to go to a different country and make disciples? How is he going to use you to change another human being forever? That's what it comes down to. Adventure awaits you if you just give up control to Jesus Christ. Now, as you're thinking about whatever area of your life that might be, think about this. If you wanted proof that you could trust someone to give control over to, a good test would be for them to give up what was most precious to them for you. That'd be a good test. If, some, if, if somebody gave up what was most precious to them for me, I would say, yes, I think I can trust you. I can, I can give control over to that person. So Veritas, I want you to remember, it wasn't only physical death and horrific suffering that Jesus confronted and willingly accepted for you and I. His life and his comfort were not the things most precious to him. What was most precious to him was intimacy with his father. And he knew that because he would be the object of his dad's wrath on the cross, that he would have to give that up. And he did it willingly. He was in control the entire time. Veritas, that's a savior we can confidently give control to in whatever area of our life we're talking about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that your son Jesus Christ looked beyond the death and the suffering to the joy that we brought into his heart by bringing thousands and millions of people back to you, back to their true father, back to their daddy. We thank you that he didn't cherish his own life and his own comfort above your will for him. We thank you that he said three times in the garden, Dad, your will be done. And I want to pray for, for anybody in here, Lord, who, who thinks that they may be beyond restoration with Christ. God, would you just erase that thought from their mind, just cast it out of their heart, <laughs> And would you fill our hearts with hope that amidst our sin and our rebellion and our idolatry and our abandoning of Jesus, there is hope. Bring us to repentance. Bring us back to the cross time and time and time again. And Lord, just help us just stare at the cross and, and look at the cross. And, and when we see it, come to believe with all of our hearts that yeah, there's, there's nothing that I can't give over to Jesus. I can give it all over to him. And we await the adventure you have for us. How you're going to use us in this church to change people's lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.